Chapter 15 of 80 Years and More Reminiscences 1815 to 1897 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Teresa Sheridan. 80 Years and More Reminiscences 1815 to 1897 by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Chapter 15. Women as Patriots. On April 15, 1861, the President of the United States called out 75,000 militia and summoned Congress to meet July 4th, when 400,000 men were called for, and 400 millions of dollars were voted to suppress the rebellion. These startling events roused the entire people and turned the current of their thoughts in new directions. While the nation's life hung in balance, and the dread artillery of war drowned, alike the voices of commerce, politics, religion, and reform, all hearts were filled with anxious forebodings, all hands were busy in solemn preparations for the awful tragedies to come. At this eventful hour, the patriotism of women shone forth as fervently and spontaneously as did that of man, and her self-sacrifice and devotion were displayed in as many varied fields of action. While he buckled on his knapsack and marched forth to conquer the enemy, she planned the campaigns which brought the nation victory, fought in the ranks, when she could do so without detection, inspired the sanitary commission, gathered needed supplies for the Grand Army, provided nurses for the hospitals, comforted the sick, smoothed the pillows of the dying, inscribed the last messages of love to those far away, and marked the resting places where the brave men fell. The labor women accomplished, the hardships they endured, the time and strength they sacrificed in the war that summoned three million men to arms, can never be fully appreciated. Indeed, we may safely say that there is scarcely a loyal woman in the North who did not do something in aid of the cause, who did not contribute time, labor, and money to the comfort of our soldiers and the success of our arms. The story of the war will never be fully written if the achievements of women are left untold. They do not figure in the official reports. They are not gazetted for gallant deeds. The names of thousands are unknown beyond the neighborhood where they lived, or the hospitals where they loved to labor. Yet there is no feature in our war more creditable to us as a nation, none from its positive newness so well worthy of record. While the mass of women never philosophize on the principles that underlie national existence, there were those in our late war who understood the political significance of the struggle, the irrepressible conflict between freedom and slavery, between national and state rights. They saw that to provide lint, bandages, and supplies for the army, while the war was not conducted on a wise policy, was to labor in vain, and while many organizations, active, vigilant, and self-sacrificing, were multiplied to look after the material wants of the army, these few formed themselves into a national loyal league, 
to teach sound principles of government and to impress on the nation's conscience that freedom for the slaves was the only way to victory. Accustomed, as most women had been, to the works of charity and to the relief of outward suffering, it was difficult to rouse their enthusiasm for an idea, to persuade them to labor for a principle. They clamored for practical work, something for their hands to do, for fairs and sewing societies, to raise money for soldiers' families, for tableau, readings, theatricals, anything but conventions to discuss principles and to circulate petitions for emancipation. They could not see that the best services they could render the army was to suppress the rebellion, and that the most effective way to accomplish that was to transform the slaves into soldiers. This woman's loyal league voiced the solemn lessons of the war. Liberty to all, national protection for every citizen under our flag, universal suffrage, and universal amnesty. After consultation with Horace Greeley, William Lloyd Garrison, Governor Andrews, and Robert Dale Owen, Miss Anthony and I decided to call a meeting of women in Cooper Institute and form a Woman's Loyal League to advocate the immediate emancipation and enfranchisement of the Southern slaves as the most speedy way of ending the war. So we issued, in tract form, and extensively circulated the following call. In the crisis of our country's destiny, it is the duty of every citizen to consider the peculiar blessings of a republican form of government, and decide what sacrifices of wealth and life are demanded for its defense and preservation. The policy of the war, our whole future life, depend on a clearly defined idea of the end proposed and the immense advantages to be secured to ourselves and all mankind by its accomplishment. No mere party or sectional cry, no technicalities of constitutional or military law, no mottos of craft or policy are big enough to touch the great heart of a nation in the midst of revolution. A grand idea such as freedom or justice is needful to kindle and sustain the fires of a high enthusiasm. At this hour, the best word and work of every man and woman are imperatively demanded. To man, by common consent, are assigned the forum, camp, and field. What is woman's legitimate work and how she may best accomplish it is worthy our earnest counsel one with another. We have heard many complaints of the lack of enthusiasm among northern women but when a mother lays her son on the altar of her country, she asks an object equal to the sacrifice. In nursing the sick and wounded, knitting socks, scraping lint, and making jellies the bravest and best, may weary if the thoughts mount not in faith to something beyond and above it all. Work is worship only when a noble purpose fills the soul. Woman is equally interested and responsible with man in the final settlement of this problem of self-government. Therefore, let none stand idle spectators now. When every hour is big with destiny, and each delay but complicates our difficulties, it is high time for the daughters of the revolution 
in solemn council to unseal the last will and testaments of the fathers, lay hold of their birthright of freedom, and keep it a sacred trust for all coming generations. To this end we ask the loyal women of the nation to meet in the Church of the Puritans, Dr. Cheevers, New York, on Thursday, the 14th of May next. Let the women of every state be largely represented in person or by letter. On behalf of the Women's Central Committee, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony. Among other resolutions adopted at the meeting were the following. Resolved. There never can be a true peace in this republic until the civil and political rights of all citizens of African descent and all women are practically established. Resolved. That the women of the revolution were not wanting in heroism and self-sacrifice, and we, their daughters, are ready in this war to pledge our time, our means, our talents, and our lives, if need be, to secure the final and complete consecration of America to freedom. It was agreed that the practical work to be done to secure freedom for the slaves was to circulate petitions through all the northern states. For months these petitions were circulated diligently everywhere, as the signatures show, some signed on fence posts, plows, the anvil, the shoemaker's bench, by women of fashion and those in the industries, alike in the parlor and the kitchen, by statesmen, professors in colleges, editors, bishops, by sailors and soldiers, and the hard-handed children of toil, building railroads and bridges and digging canals, and in mines in the bowels of the earth. Petitions signed by 300,000 persons can now be seen in the National Archives in the Capitol at Washington. Three of my sons spent weeks in our office in Cooper Institute, rolling up the petitions from each state separately and inscribing on the outside the number of names of men and women contained therein. We sent appeals to the President, the House of Representatives, and the Senate from time to time, urging emancipation and the passage of the proposed 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the National Constitution. During these eventful months, we received many letters from Senator Sumner, saying, Send on the petitions as fast as received. They give me opportunities for speech. Robert Dale Owen, chairman of the Freedmen's Commission, was most enthusiastic in the work of the Loyal League and came to our rooms frequently to suggest new modes of agitation and to give us an inkling of what was going on behind the scenes in Washington. Those who had been specially engaged in the woman's suffrage movement suspended their conventions during the war and gave their time and thought wholly to the vital issues of the hour. Seeing the political significance of the war, they urged the emancipation of the slaves as the sure, quick way of cutting the Gordian knot of the rebellion. To this end, they organized a national league and rolled up a mammoth petition urging Congress so to amend the Constitution as to prohibit the existence of slavery in the United States. From their headquarters in Cooper Institute, New York City, they sent out the appeals to the President, Congress, and the people at large, 
tracts and forms of petition, franked by members of Congress, were scattered like snowflakes from Maine to Texas. Meetings were held every week, in which the policy of the government was freely discussed, and approved or condemned. That this League did a timely educational work is manifested by the letters received from generals, statesmen, editors, and from women in most of the northern states, fully endorsing its action and principles. The clearness to thinking women of the cause of the war, the true policy in waging it, their steadfastness in maintaining the principles of freedom, are worthy of consideration. With this league, abolitionists and Republicans heartily cooperated. A course of lectures was delivered for its benefit in Cooper Institute by such men as Horace Greeley, George William Curtis, William D. Kelly, Wendell Phillips, E. P. Whipple, Frederick Douglass, Theodore D. Weld, Reverend Dr. Tyne, and Dr. Bellows. Many letters are on its files from Charles Sumner, approving its measures, and expressing great satisfaction at the large number of emancipation petitions being rolled into Congress. The Republican press, too, was highly complimentary. The New York Tribune said, The women of the Loyal League have shown great practical wisdom in restricting their efforts to one subject, the most important which any society can aim at in this hour, and great courage in undertaking to do what never has been done in the world before, to obtain one million of names to a petition. The leading journals vied with each other in praising the patience and prudence, the executive ability, the loyalty, and the patriotism of the women of the League. And yet these were the same women who, when demanding civil and political rights, privileges, and immunities for themselves, had been uniformly denounced as unwise, imprudent, fanatical, and impracticable. During the six years they held their own claims in abeyance to those of the slaves of the South, and labored to inspire the people with enthusiasm for the great measures of the Republican Party, they were highly honored as wise, loyal, and clear-sighted. But when the slaves were emancipated and these women asked, that they should be recognized in the Reconstruction as citizens of the Republic, equal before the law, all these transcendent virtues vanished like dew before the morning sun. And thus it ever is, so long as women labors to second man's endeavors and exalt his sex above her own, her virtues pass unquestioned. But when she dares to demand rights and privileges for herself, her motives, manners, dress, personal appearance, and character are subjects for ridicule and detraction. Liberty, victorious over slavery on the battlefield, had now more powerful enemies to encounter at Washington. The slaves set free, the master conquered, the South desolate, the two races standing face to face, sharing alike the sad results of war turned with appealing looks to the general government, as if to say, How stand we now? What next? Questions are statesmen, beset with dangers, with fears for the nation's life, of party divisions, of personal defeat, were wholly unprepared to answer. 
the reconstruction of the South involved the reconsideration of the fundamental principles of our government and the natural rights of man. The nation's heart was thrilled with prolonged debates in Congress and state legislatures, in the pulpits and public journals, and at every fireside on these vital questions, which took final shape in the three historic amendments to the Constitution. The first point, his emancipation, settled. The political status of the Negro was next in order, and to this end various propositions were submitted to Congress. But to demand his enfranchisement on the broad principle of natural rights was hedged about with difficulties, as the logical result of such action must be the enfranchisement of all ostracized classes, not only the white women of the entire country, but the slave women of the South. Though our senators and representatives had an honest aversion to any proscriptive legislation against loyal women, in view of their varied and self-sacrificing work during the war, yet the only way they could open the constitutional door just wide enough to let the black man pass in was to introduce the word male into the national constitution. After the generous devotion of such women as Anna Carroll and Anna Dickinson in sustaining the policy of the Republicans, both in peace and war, they felt it would come with a bad grace from that party to place new barriers in woman's path to freedom. But how could the amendment be written without the word male was the question. Robert Dale Owen, being at Washington, and behind the scenes at the time, sent copies of the various bills to the officers of the Loyal League in New York, and related to us some of the amusing discussions. One of the committee proposed persons instead of males. That will never do, said another. It would enfranchise wenches. Suffrage for black men will be all the strain the Republican Party can stand, said another. Charles Sumner said, years afterward, that he wrote over nineteen pages of foolscap to get rid of the word male, and yet keep Negro suffrage as a party measure intact, but it could not be done. Miss Anthony and I were the first to see the full significance of the word male in the Fourteenth Amendment, and we at once sounded the alarm and sent out petitions for a constitutional amendment to prohibit the states from disfranchising any of their citizens on the ground of sex. Miss Anthony, who had spent the year in Kansas, started for New York the moment she saw the proposition before Congress to put the word male into the national constitution, and made haste to rouse the women in the East to the fact that the time had come to begin vigorous work again for women's enfranchisement. Leaving Rochester October 11th, she called on Martha Wright at Auburn, Phoebe Jones and Lydia Mott at Albany, Madams Rose Gibbons Davis at New York City, Lucy Stone and Antoinette Brown Blackwell in New Jersey, Stephen and Abby Foster at Worcester, Madams Severance Dow Noel 
Dr. Harriet K. Hunt, Dr. M. E. Sacasosa, and Misters Phillips and Garrison in Boston, urging them to join in sending protest to Washington against the pending legislation. Mr. Phillips at once consented to devote $500 from the Jackson Fund to commence the work. Miss Anthony and I spent all our Christmas holidays in writing letters and addressing appeals and petitions to every part of the country, and, before the close of the session of 1865-66, to 66, petitions with 10,000 signatures were poured into Congress. One of my letters was as follows. To the editor of the Standard. Sir, Mr. Brumall of Pennsylvania, Mr. Shank of Ohio, Mr. Jenkins of Rhode Island, and Mr. Stevens of Pennsylvania have each a resolution before Congress to amend the Constitution. Article 1st, Section 2nd, reads thus. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers. Mr. Brumall proposes to amend by saying, male electors, Mr. Shank, male citizens, Mr. Jenkins, male citizens, Mr. Stevens, male voters, as, in process of time, women may be made legal voters in the several states and would then meet that requirement of the Constitution. But those urged by the other gentlemen, neither time, effort, nor state constitutions, could enable us to meet, unless by a liberal interpretation of the amendment, a coat of mail to be worn at the polls, might be judged all sufficient. Mr. Jenkins and Mr. Schenck, in their bills, have the grace not to say a word about taxes, remembering perhaps, that taxation without representation is tyranny. But Mr. Brumall, though unwilling that we should share in the honors of government, would fain secure us a place in its burdens. For, while he apportions representatives to male electors only, he admits all the inhabitants into the rights, privileges, and immunities of taxation. Magnanimous M.C., I would call the attention of the women of the nation to the fact that, under the federal constitution as it now exists, there is not one word that limits the right of suffrage to any privileged class. This attempt to turn the wheels of civilization backward on the part of Republicans claiming to be the liberal party should rouse every woman in the nation to a prompt exercise of the only right she has in the government the right of petition. To this end, a committee in New York have sent out thousands of petitions, which should be circulated in every district and sent to its representative at Washington as soon as possible. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, New York, January 2nd, 1866. End of chapter 15. Recording by Teresa Sheridan.